is brought to you by Home Advisor and Greenworks. Now, here are Tom and Leslie. Coast to coast and floorboards to shingles, this is the Money Pit Home Improvement Show. I'm Tom Kreitler. And I'm Leslie Segretti. And we're here to help you with your home improvement projects. It is almost spring. Do you have some projects on your to-do list? Give us a call. Let's talk about them. We'll help you find the best way to get those done quickly, easily, and as inexpensively as possible. And we might even help you not have to do it twice. So give us a call right now. That number is one eight 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 Money Pit. Coming up on today's show, if you love the look of hardwood on your floors, you might not realize that this same product can be used to create a beautiful accent wall. We're going to have tips to get that project done. Plus, has this ever happened to you? You're in the middle of drying your hair and the power goes out. All the time. Listen, it happens sometimes, and it's never fun when it does, but you know, circuit breakers trip for a reason. We're going to tell you why these devices keep you safe and what you can do if they're tripping. And if you know the age of your home, you can stay ahead of problems common to its vintage. We'll tell you how to do just that. But first, we want to know what you want to know. What are you working on? What are your plans? How can we help you to achieve all of those home decor, design, improvement dreams that you've got for your Money Pit? The number is 1-888-MONEYPIT, 888-666-3974. Leslie, who's first? Donna in Michigan's on the line with some pinhole issues in the plumbing. Tell us what's going on. Hi, uh, I'm a landlord. Um, I have copper water lines. This is my third occurrence now of uh, springing a leak in these copper water lines, just a little tiny, tiny pinhole leak. And I'm wondering if there's such a thing that maybe somebody has invented where they could just smudge on and press into the <laughs> hole and maybe harden to the point of like a JB weld or something like that or not. Or do I yeah. have to change the whole line? Well, look, you could buy yourself time with stuff like that. But what you're experiencing, these copper, it's actually is a very well-known problem. It's called copper pinhole pipe leaks. And it happens, yeah, it happens because of the acidity in the water. And it basically is a wearing of the interior of your copper pipes. And when it gets thin enough, it forms these little holes. And as you've experienced, once it starts, it just continues and it'll be an ongoing thing. What you would be smart to do would be to uh, replace any of that copper pipe that you can get access to when it happens. So if you end up opening up a wall to uh, you know, fix any of this or if you can access it from the basement or the crawl space or the attic, you want to replace that pipe with PEX. It's PEX, cross-link polyethylene. That's the state-of-the-art plumbing for today. The stuff's virtually indestructible, and you'll never have to worry about it again. The nice thing about about PEX, too, is it's flexible, so it can get run into different locations and twists and turns without the traditional need to solder elbows and and all of that, so it's a less expensive way to go. But uh, just patching this is, is, you know, is is just that. It's going to continue. By the time you fix one, you know, a month or two later, you might pop open another one. So I would, I would encourage you to, to look towards replacing those pipes as they fail. Uh, And if you have the opportunity, replace everything that's accessible first, and then replace everything else as it reveals itself. And then PEX, you said. Yep, PEX. That's the type of piping. Yep, okay, pecs. I can go anywhere and get that then. Pretty well, much, this right? is now this is a job for a pro. It's not a it's not a DIY. You have to have special tools, but it's PEX. And if, I'm just telling you this because if you bring a plumber in, and plumber says, "Well, I can replace that with plastic pipes," I don't want you to go. Ah, I don't know about that plastic. No, no, you do want. 
PEX, cross-link polyethylene piping. Uh, that's the stuff that you want, and it will be uh, a really good job when it's done. Do uh, glue together then and stuff, or what? There's fasteners that sort of connect the two, and then they're squeezed to crimp to create that closure. That's why it's sort of specialized, but it's super durable, super flexible. I mean, and it looks fantastic when it's installed. Next time you get online, a Google copper pinhole plumbing leaks, and you'll read all about it, and you can also look into PEX, P-E-X pipe, okay? Okay, thank you so much. You're welcome. Good luck with that project. Thanks for calling us at one eight 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 Money Pit. Tim, you've got the money pit. What can we do for you today? Considering doing a, a uh, epoxy floor in my basement. Okay. Renovating. All right. And uh, I've never done one before, so I'm just kind of curious. Is this something that's achievable by a DIY kind of a, or, or is it something better left to professional? No, it's absolutely a do-it-yourself project. It's not difficult to apply an epoxy floor. Basically, the way the material works is when you purchase the epoxy floor paint, it comes in, in, in two containers. It usually is a gallon that only has about three quarters filled with the epoxy paint, and then it has a quart of hardener. And when you're ready to apply the paint, you mix them together and you'll have, you know, a couple hours or three hours or so of work time. Uh, the key is going to be to make sure that you follow the instructions on prepping that surface. You're going to obviously clean it first. And then sometimes when you buy these uh, epoxy floor products, there'll be an acid etch in the kit, which basically you're going to apply to the floor. That just makes sure that you get anything off that could interrupt the ability of that epoxy to stick. And then the last step, which is sort of a, a do-it-as-you-go project, is these products will have uh, color flakes that as you uh, complete an area, you know, maybe a 4 by 4 area or 6 by 6 area, you would uh, sprinkle these color flakes on the wet epoxy, and then they sort of settle down and embed and give the floor a little bit of texture and makes it look kind of cool. So I definitely think it's a do-it-yourself project, and I think uh, it's something that's going to look uh, a heck of a lot Better than that old concrete floor does right now. Just follow the instructions and you'll be good to go, Tim. Are there any particular brands that you recommend? No, I mean, I think they all kind of work very much in the same manner. It depends on who has better color palette because some of them are sort of limited. Uh, that's kind of where I start with it. I don't favor one over the other. Yeah, I think I think if you stick with the major brands, you'll be good. And uh, just good practice is to double your drive time. So your dry time. So don't think uh, if it says it's going to dry in two hours, you know, give it four or five or six hours or just keep everybody off overnight because you really want to let it set up good before you start putting traffic on it. If I have any kind of cracks or anything on the floor, should I use a floor patch? Because previously there there were nails and such driven into the floor, so it's going to have a little bit of uh, some some little uh, divots and cracks and stuff like that. I, I would say that if it's my, if there are minor cracks, it'll be filled in by the by the by the epoxy. If there's significant cracks, if they're open a quarter of an inch or more, then you could use an epoxy. Uh, you can use an epoxy patching compound. Take a look at the products made by Quickcrete. Uh, they, they're a very good brand, and they have some uh, good repair products as well on their website at quickcrete.com. All right. Well, thanks a lot. You can also listen to the Money Pit podcast. we got some great news on the podcast this week. Apple has the uh, the podcast charts, and we were very pleased to learn that the Money Pit Home and Garden podcast is the number one best podcast in the home and garden category of all time of all time 
How about that? That's awesome. And you know what? We could not have done it without all of you. So we're glad that our tips and our advice have been helping you out now for oh, almost two decades. <laughs> if you've got a question, we've got answers. Give us a call right now at one eight 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 Money Pit. Debbie in Texas is on the line and is dealing with a basement project. Tell us what you're working on. Well, I have a cement floor that right now has indoor-outdoor carpet that's glued down, and I'd like to peel the carpet up and then paint the floor. So my question is, what type of prep, once I get the carpet up, what type of prep do I need to do, and then what type of paint should I use? Now, have you started to try and remove this outdoor carpeting? Yes, we have, and uh, it is glued, and so there's, mm-hmm. there's a glue... I guess, base that's that's on the floor. So we'd need to somehow scrape that off. Yes. And that, and, and did you say this was a screened in porch or a covered porch? No, it's an indoor, it's indoors. Oh, it's completely indoors. Okay. Um, that's going to make it a bit of a chore. The reason I was a little excited that you had a lot of fresh air while you were working is because you're going to need to use an adhesive remover if your plan is to paint this floor because you're going to end up with so much residue from that glue that's going to be all over, and there's a good chance that it's going to be uneven and raised and spotty in some areas. You're going to have pieces of carpeting on it, and it's going to be a mess. So you're going to have to find exactly what type of adhesive that is and what is the best remover for it because depending on what the base is of that adhesive, will depend on what type of adhesive remover you use. So it's really going to be an experimentation to sort of see what works well. And then once you find what really is working well at loosening up that adhesive, I mean, you're really just going to have to use like a heavy-duty scraper and, you know, work on that glue residue until that's up. And then even then, your painted surface is going to look really not that great after all of that work. So I guess your recommendation would be go go back with indoor-outdoor carpet. Well, I mean, in a, in a lower-level space, carpeting really isn't the best idea, whether there's padding or not, whether it's glued or not, only because you're dealing with a dust trap that's sitting right on top of a concrete slab that tends to get moist. All of that moisture gets up into that carpeting, whether or not it's indoor-outdoor. Now, that moisture sort of sits with that dust and creates all sorts of allergens and mold and... You know, it's really not the best idea. Tile would work fantastically. And if you got that floor fairly even-ish, even with the adhesive, you could go ahead and do something with that with tile. Um, you know, it depends on what you want the space to look like. If you're okay with seeing an uneven surface and you want to paint over that, then an epoxy coating is perfect for, you know, a floor in that situation. But it depends. You know, I spend a lot of time in my basement, so I wouldn't want to see such an uneven floor surface, whether it was painted my favorite color or not. And what harm would come if I just peeled the carpet and scraped the glue, scraped it smooth, and then painted? Would the paint not stick if there was still old glue there? I mean, I don't think so. The, the, the systems like the epoxy coating systems are usually sold in kits. There's several steps. The first one is an etching or a cleaning step. Then there's your top coat that you mix in with, um, I guess all, all of the different process that sort of cures it and solidifies it. And some of them have that little decorative speckle. Um, you know, and that gets sort of sprinkled in there at the end. And you want to work yourself out of a corner so you don't get trapped down there. But, I mean, it should stick fairly well. It just, you know, is this a a utility space that you're strictly storing things in? Is this your family hangout? You know, you have to think about what that space is and how you want it to look. Okay. Well, that gives me some ideas. I guess I 
first need to get the carpet up and see what it looks like underneath and go from there. All right. Well, thank you so much. Well, with as little as 100 square feet of flooring, you can step up the style in any room of your home by using flooring to create an accent wall. Now, this trendy look is a great weekend home improvement project that delivers a big impact for a relatively small expense. Now, yeah, you can choose from any flooring material for this project, bamboo, hardwood, woodlook tile, luxury vinyl, or even laminate. And you can do this project using decorative wall panels, which are hardwood strips mounted on wood backing. They're versatile and super easy to install. Yeah, the installation is pretty straightforward, and it's pretty much the same as what you would do if you were installing the product to a floor. Depending on the type of flooring, the planks can be secured to the walls using nails, glue, or even something called wood flooring tape. You'll also want to make sure to let that flooring acclimate in your home for a few days, you know, kind of dry out, get used to the temperature and the humidity inside your house before you start laying them on the wall. And a little trick of the trade to make it easy you should arrange your planks side by side on the floor first. Just set aside a space on the floor the same size as the wall. You can essentially plan the whole pattern there. If you want, you could even take some white chalk and write on the planks, you know, one, two, three, four, and so on to get them all in the right order, and then you can install them. This way, you won't be trying to figure that out with only two hands while they're falling off the wall at the same time. <laughs> Heading to South Dakota, where Jeremiah is joining the Money Pit. What can we do for you? So I bought a home about six months ago that's from 1935, and they did an attic conversion already. And the previous owners apparently had to drop down, you know, the attic access door with the stairs that fold down. Right. Well, when I bought the house, they put stairs, actual stairs in there. There's 13 of them, but they're sticking out into my hallway. Okay. (laughs) So when you walk into a bedroom, you've got a staircase jutted right in front of the doorway, and you hit your head. So I didn't know what you guys would recommend. Yeah. Sounds like they didn't really think, think through the whole stair thing very well when they, when they did this attic conversion. So look, um, stair construction, uh, is not an easy project. It's definitely not a DIY project. It's something that's sort of advanced carpentry because when you build a stair, there are certain parameters that you have to follow. The step height and the step depth are the two most important ones. And, um, you know, basically when you build stairs, you measure the total distance from the highest part of the platform to the lowest part, and you divide it so that you can get a height of each step of somewhere between 7 and 8 inches. That's a normal step height. If it gets much higher than that, then it becomes more of a ladder and less of a stair, and people are going to trip. Now, once you have that, you also now have to have enough depth, right, of the tread. That's called the run. So the run on the stair is usually around nine inches, and usually there's a ten inch or ten and a half inch tread that overhangs uh, a little bit, and that part that overhangs is called the bullnose. So when you build a stair, you try to you try to figure this out so you have um, as few steps as possible, but they're not too tall. But then that's also going to dictate how far out into the room they go. Now, if they sort of just bought a stock staircase and threw it in there and tried to call it a day, it's obviously not going to work. You're going to have to look at some other way of configuring the stairs. It may not be possible to put one straight run of stair up. Maybe you have to have a stair that turns a corner. Maybe you have to use a spiral stair. Could I um, maybe take the wall back in the bedroom and shrink the bedroom a little and put a platform in, like a platform staircase? 
It's possible if, but I would just be cautious, first of all, to make sure that the wall you're talking about cutting back is not a bearing wall because that gets very complicated. And also remember that if you reduce the size of a bedroom, it potentially has an effect on the value of the home, although the fact that you're doing it to add a whole second floor, you know, maybe there's a trade-off there. I would tell you to not start digging into this until you have a contractor or an architect look at this and see if there's an easier way to get this done. I, I, I sense okay. that you don't have, you know, the experience completely to do this design yourself, and that's fine because very few people that are not pros would. But I think it's a situation where some professional advice uh, would be well used here because you want to get this right once. If you do it in a way that looks haphazard or amateurish, it will detract from the value of your home. I have seen that many times in the years I spent as a home inspector. You walk into a house and you can tell instantly that whoever put this part of the house together was not a pro because of the way it looks. And it might have been their pet project. Believe me, I have broken many hearts over the years criticizing some of the work that I saw, but it just wasn't right. So I don't want to see that happen to you, okay? All right. Well, I appreciate it. And I think that's what they did. So I didn't want to cut it out and do the same thing. Yeah. Well, good luck and smart of you to research that. All right. Well, thank you guys. You have a great day. You too. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Joe from Kentucky's on the line with some help with a bathroom cleaning project. What can we do for you? Yes, I have an old bathtub, and where the water has leaked, I have some porcelain. I guess it's a porcelain tub. Uh, I have some orange spots in there, and they look like they're going to eventually just give way on me. I want to know how I could patch that up. Are they super tiny, or are they, you know, an yes. inch or so? Oh, yes, they're very small. There are touch-ups, but you know what? They, they will show. Yeah, I mean, I've used one. When we bought our house, there was like a tiny, I mean, super tiny little rust spot in our tub. And I used a product called Porsafix. And you can get it in, I mean, in pretty much in any home center. It comes in a variety of like whites and off whites. So you kind of have to guess which one's going to work close enough to your exact white or bisque or whatever you want to call it. Right. And it almost looks like it's a, a nail polish bottle, kind of. Okay. And you apply it in gradual layers, you know, letting it set up and then going back the next day and putting another one on until you build it up. And it's done a fairly good job. I mean, we've been in the house eight years and it's still there. It's still covered up. But I mean, I know exactly where it is. Okay. Well, I thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thanks so much for calling us at 888 888- money pit well we've all been there you're in the middle of something when poof the lights go out and it seems to always happen at the worst possible time yep now it may be a nuisance but circuit breakers trip when there's a major safety hazard what they'll do is protect you from an overload which is basically when too many appliances are running at the same time and the circuit's drawing too much power. What can happen in this case is the wiring can overheat. So the idea is that the breaker trips before it becomes a fire hazard. And it can also help protect you from a short circuit, like when an appliance breaks down, the breaker will sense that and shut it down to keep the system safe. So they do serve a very important purpose. And if they're tripping, they're tripping for a reason. 
Now, there is a fairly new type of circuit breaker that can help prevent fires called an arc fault circuit interrupter. So, Tom, how do these arc fault circuit interrupters really work? Are they just sort of anticipating what's coming? No, they actually do sense an arc. It's kind of the next level of protection. If they, if there's any arcing scenario, which could happen if you have a bad switch or if you have a wire that's overheating or a loose connection where the basically electricity is jumping from one point to another, it can detect that arc and instantly shut down the circuit breaker. Now, these AFCIs that we talked about, the arc fault circuit interrupters, that's sort of a new concept. But what's been around a lot longer is a ground fault circuit interrupter. And I think a lot of people might not really be familiar with what that is either. Well, you've probably seen it, although you may not know what it's called. It's when you see an outlet that has a test and reset button on it. You'll usually see them in the kitchens uh, and in bathrooms, perhaps in your garage. It's basically kind of like the arc fault. But like you say, it has been around longer. But it has one job to do, and that is to protect you from a shock that's caused by a grounding. So a grounding basically means when electricity is trying to find its way back to ground. If uh, that happens, we don't want you to be the ground. So if it detects two thousandths of a volt, uh, going to a ground, it will turn off the circuit. So that's really a great way to protect you from hazards, especially in damp areas like kitchens and bathrooms and garages. In fact, that's why the code requires it in spaces just like that. And I think that's why people are familiar with seeing them in outlets in those spaces. But you can also install them in the panel directly. Yeah, you can. It depends on how the circuit is laid out. In a newer house, you may very well see them in the panel um, because this way the entire circuit is covered. But, you know, and you have to do it carefully. For example, uh, in your kitchen, you would not want to have the outlet that the refrigerator is using on a GFCI because a refrigerator going on and off will trip the outlet unexpectedly and not because of short, but just because the refrigerator compressor pulls so much power, kind of fakes it out. So in a modern house, you'd have the refrigerator on one circuit, you'd have the lighting on a different circuit, and you'd have all the counter outlets on the circuit that was protected by the ground fault. So it depends kind of on the age of the house, but whether you have an old house or a new house, you could definitely take advantage of that technology and be all that much safer as a result. Mike and George is on the line with a question about a dimmer. How can we help you? My kitchen is in the center of my house, so I get very okay. little light from the windows, and I tried an LED light. I have five 60-watt cams in there. I had heard you mention about a dimmer that would work with the LEDs. My question is, is, is there a particular kind? I need one that works with a three-way. Yeah, um, you can go to the Home Depot, and you can pick up the Lutron Skylark Contour C.L dimmer. That's the Lutron Skylark Contour C.L. This is a dimmer that's designed specifically to work with energy efficient bulbs. It works with CFLs and it works with LEDs. And specifically, it's adjustable so that you can get the lowest level and then the highest level of light. And therefore, when you move the dimmer up and down, it, it controls that. Typically, with standard dimmers, you can get a flicker because at some point you're going to be not putting enough power in to bring that bulb on. So you get the sort of flickering effect. But with this Skylark Contour C.L line of dimmers, you can adjust the low end and this way it'll always be on when you turn the switch on and then you can bring it up from there. Yeah, I was afraid with five cams in the middle of the house, it would look like Yankee Stadium. No, I actually... I actually have uh, one of these dimmers in my kitchen, and I've got five cans on this dimmer. So I have exactly that situation, and I have uh, LEDs in the in the lights. I have the Philips LEDs in there, the ones that are yellow, 
and they turn really super clean white light when you turn them on. And I've got that Skylark uh, dimmer controlling the whole thing. Now, that's not a three-way, but I'm sure it will work on a three-way. And the thing that's cool about Lutron is, as you're putting this together, if you have a question, they have like an 800 toll-free tech support number. You can call them, and there's somebody always standing by to kind of answer your wiring questions. If you can't figure out where the extra wire goes, they'll tell you. (laughs) Okay, great. Thanks a lot. You're welcome, Mike. Thanks so much for calling us at 888-MONEYPIT. Well, as long as there have been homes, there have been home repairs. But if you know the age of your home, you can stay ahead of problems common to its vintage because homes of a similar age have similar issues. Well, that's right. And and in fact, if you know a little bit about the systems through the years, you can get pretty close to determining its age. So, for example, if you have a house that has some of the original knob and tube wiring, that was probably built somewhere around 1920. If it's got steel plumbing pipes, that might be, say, up as late as 1940. Uh, if the walls were not insulated or the chimneys were unlined, that's early 1900s. Um, if you move into, say, the 1940s to the 60s, you'd see things like undersized electrical systems and asbestos ceiling tile. Then when you move into the 1960s to the 80s, then you start seeing things like aluminum wiring and fire retardant plywood, which were two really big hazards from those years. So if you know how your home is put together, you can get a pretty good idea of when it was built. Well, and I think that's really important. You've got to really know what the age of that house is before you invest, because it's going to help you understand the features of the structure, as well as the building techniques and the materials that are going to spell trouble later. And to find out, you know, you can research public records at your local building department, the tax assessor, and the registrar of deeds. Yeah, and there's another way, I'll give you a little home inspector trick of the trade, that you could figure out the age of the home. If it has the original plumbing fixtures, like a toilet, lift the lid and look at the underside. They're almost always date stamped, either the lid or the tank itself, by the manufacturer, literally as they roll off the assembly line. The date is usually expressed as a four-digit number, like it might just say 1954, but you might also find that's preceded by a letter and just have the last two digits like M54 or D54. Other plumbing fixtures like sinks, I've seen cast iron sinks that actually had the date cast into them in really old houses. So sometimes uh, if you take a look at those old toilets or old sinks, you can actually find the date that it was made. And you can bet, because these things were so expensive to produce, that your home was probably constructed within a year or two after that. Now we've got Lorraine in Arizona who needs some help with a paneling decorating project. Welcome, Lorraine. We have an older home that has um, two walls and has paneling on. And I was told that uh, if we took the paneling off, it would probably damage the drywall. Mm-hmm. So I was considering maybe trying to put something over top of the paneling to give it a different look and wanted some suggestions. Well, it depends. It depends on how it's attached to whatever is behind it. There may not be any drywall behind it. It might just be the paneling attached directly to the studs, in which case you would have to put drywall up. It could be that the paneling was glued to the drywall, then you would never get it off without completely destroying the drywall. Or it could be that it was just nailed on. You're not really going to know until you sort of peer at a corner or an area where you can take off a little bit of trim work and see what exactly is going on before you make a decision. So that's probably best step number one. Now, if you find out that there's really no removing it and your choices are to deal with the paneling and make it look better or cover over it with, you know, quarter-inch drywall, you can do that. You know, it depends on how much work you want to do. 
painting paneling certainly is an excellent option. I mean, it, it creates a totally different look when you paint paneling, you know, a crisp, glossy white or an off-white or something that really just poses a good neutral backdrop and just sort of go with it. Okay, this is very light paneling anyway. And, I mean, are you at a point where you just want to see it be darker, different, or gone? Different. You know, painting it really does look nice. It doesn't have to be something that, you know, in the end you're going to think, ooh, that doesn't look good. You just have to make sure that you clean it, you prime it well, and then you give it a good top coat. Now, I would really start by just taking off a piece of trimming and door frame and seeing how it's attached. And if you want to truly start with just a fresh look, you can absolutely cover over the entire space with a quarter-inch drywall without losing too much space. You're just going to have to sort of bump out your electrical boxes, your switches, your trim work, etc., which for a handy person isn't that big of a deal. So, I mean, it could be a project you could do on your own or to hire somebody wouldn't be that expensive. Okay, sounds good. All right, good luck with that. Thanks so much for calling us at 888 Money Pit. You can always post your question on moneypit.com, just like David from Utah did. Now, David writes, I pulled up old carpet in a home we're moving into next week, which revealed gorgeous hardwood, except the hardwood is covered in staples and rust. What's a quick fix for fixing this up before we move in? I don't want to take on sanding and refinishing right now. Well, I got to tell you, David, this is the time to take on sanding and refinishing because the hardest part of doing your floors is finding the floor through all the furniture and carpet and all the other stuff that's going to get piled in there. I can tell you that, man, that is really the work of doing that kind of job. I will tell you that you probably, in this case, don't have to do a serious sanding because it sounds like what you've just got is sort of the surface showing a little bit of wear and uh, and like the rust is probably from the nails that went through it. But you could probably clear that, clean that up with not a full sanding, but just with um, a sanding screen. So what you could do is you could rent a buffer at uh, you know local home center or rental place, and instead of using a buffing pad on it, they will give you sanding screens, which are like usually like a hundred grit, maybe eighty grit screens. They look literally like window screens, but they're discs. You put it under the buffer, and you work that across the floor, and it tends to take off. Not only the dirt and grime, but that sort of first layer of finish. If there's any stains like rust on it, it'll probably take that off, or you could do a little bit of hand touch-up after that. And once that's all done, then you can literally mop on polyurethane. You'll need two to three coats. Use a lamb's wool applicator, which is uh, kind of a piece of cloth that wraps around what looks like the size of a roller, but it's kind of a bracket that holds it in place and a long stick. And you apply it by literally mopping it on. You do a little cutting around the edges and work your way to the door. Hopefully you find some dry weather. Uh, and do get that done. Even if it put up drying, even if it put off moving in for a couple more days, you will definitely thank yourself for not having waited on that project. We've got a post here from Mason in Tennessee who writes, Our pressure-treated pine fence was stained 12 years ago when we put it up. I recently power-washed it, and I like the new natural look. Can I leave it like this, or does it make sense to stain it again? Well, you're definitely going to need to stain that again. The natural look 
uh, that you're calling it is not going to stay that way for very long. By the end of the summer, it'll probably get dark gray, and then it might even start to turn black in places. So I would definitely stain it again. I would use a solid color stain. Now, if you like the color of it now, you can find a stain in that color. But a solid color stain will seal the wood and give it the protection that it needs, and it'll still show the grain. And one trick of the trade, if those fence boards are rubbing on the ground, undercut them so you put a little air gap in there and the fence will last a whole lot longer as a result. All right, good tip. Good luck, Mason. You've been listening to the Money Pit Home Improvement Show and we're so glad that you are. We hope that we've been able to give you some tips and ideas on projects that you would like to tackle and get done around your house. If you run into uh, anything that you can't handle, if you run into something that's confusing, if you're wondering if a purchase of a home improvement product or project makes financial sense for your home if you've got questions basically we are here to take them 24 7 at 1-888-MONEYPIT 888-666-3974 i'm tom kreitler and i'm leslie segretti remember you can do it yourself but you don't have to do it alone 